This show is brought to you by our generous patrons at patreon.com slash falloutlorecast. Robots Radio presents the Fallout Lorecast. Welcome to the Fallout Lorecast, a place for the Fallout community to come together to explore the boundaries of our knowledge about the world of Fallout. Hey, Vault Dwellers and Wastelanders, this is your host, Tom or Robots, and welcome back to a very special episode of the Fallout Lorecast. I am here with my good buddy, Ken, from the Chad of Fallout 76 story podcast. For the first time, we get to get together and talk about Fallout lore, and this is something both of us nerd out about a lot. And you may have heard us talking about some of this stuff on the Robots Roundtable show. But this is the first time I get to actually sit down with Ken and talk about some of the lore stuff on this show. Ken, welcome to the Fallout Lorecast. Thank you for having me. Hello, Lorecasters. Hello, Lorecast world. Hello, Lorecasters. Now I know... Hello, hello, geeks. Hello, geeks on the internet. Hello, geeks. (laughs) Where, Where you belong, your natural environment. Um, well, I know that a number of our listeners have checked out your show, but there are still plenty of people who I'm sure haven't uh, really given it a shot yet. Um, I was a fan from like the very first moment I started listening to your first episode when it was up on uh, YouTube. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Was like, I was like, holy crap, this is awesome. This guy's doing great stuff. We need to work together. And then things just kind of went from there. But for anybody who doesn't know about good old Chad... Uh, <laughs> Why don't you give us a little, a little, uh, I don't know, teaser. What, what's this show actually about? Because it's not like this show. It is very different. Oh, yeah, it's very different. Um, it comes from a, a, a lot of different aspects uh, of my life and even Fallout. I got into Fallout series back in Fallout 3 and immediately fell in love with the lore, the retrofuturistic aesthetic. Uh, the game hooked me immediately, and I became hooked played Fallout mm-hmm. New Vegas, Fallout 4. Uh, and then as soon as I heard about 76, I jumped right in in beta. Um, I've been a fan of, of vintage radio drama and modern storytelling podcasts for almost as long. Um, I grew up listening to like the No Sleep podcast, later Limetown or the Black Tapes, all excellent shows. Um, and out of nowhere... Uh, I decided to give podcasting a crack and try and take all of these kind of disparate elements of fallout and dark humor and uh, storytelling and creating worlds and create this this kind of weird Chad cake. Weird that, uh, Chad cake. That, uh, Excuse me, um, waitress, I would like to try the weird Chad cake, please. Extra sauce. Uh, yes, I would like dessert. Thank you. It comes from a bunch of different places. Um, like I grew up with a, a Chad bully, uh, as so many of us did. Pretty much everyone knew a Chad. Um, when playing through the game <laughs> one night with friends, uh, we were in, it was in uh, Grafton in the high school and started reminiscing about people that we knew in school. And I started talking about Chad and everyone else was like, yeah, I knew a Chad too, or that Chad's a dickhead. And I started wondering <laughs> what, it, what it would be like if you know, you're know you just living in the vault, 
you're excited, um, you're really looking forward to getting out there, transforming the world, making a place for yourself. But unlike school, where you can just step out the door and then never see that person again, unless they're in the paper or you know working at the <laughs> <laughs> working at the local mechanic shop. Um, that Show up person in a Florida just, man story. Yeah, know. yeah. Living yeah. in Florida, living off basalt. Um, <laughs> this person just doggedly pursues you and just never goes away. He's there borrowing your tools or waking up at three o'clock in the morning and he's using your armor workbench uh, and just won't leave you be. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how the stories came about. Um, I started writing them as kind of journal entries on some of the Facebook groups, and they got an inordinate amount of likes and shares. Um, a few people suggested yeah. turning them into something, so I thought, "What the hell?" Um, yeah, I think I think you really hit a nerve with that too. Yeah, people like, found them funny and interesting. They wanted more and kept asking for more. Um, the story, if you listen to episode one. Keep listening through until like episode three, because how we started it changed pretty dramatically. Originally, it was just me reading these journal entries um, in the style of Mind Fog or some of these other storytelling podcasts um, out there. They're just from a first person perspective. And it got so popular that we added a full cast uh, to the point that we have 23 different voice actors now that if anything, we've made pre wastelanders, the experience of Appalachia, maybe, um, or Appalachia, somebody's going to correct me. I Appalachia. Keep, I'm from new England. I struggle with that. Um, the experience of the world's just so much more exciting. Um, like even in our recent episode, the pioneer camp, quests I felt in Fallout were not as exciting as they maybe could have been. They didn't really mm-hmm. capture the, the camping experience. Uh, and so in our version, the gang basically gets summer jobs as counselors. And uh, one of our voice actors, Mark, his two kids, Logan and Sophia, ended up voicing the ghoul kids and did an amazing job with it. Um, but you just feel like the world has a lot more going on and there's more people in it. So there's more opportunity yeah. to create some kind of cool stories. Yeah. Yeah. You move from, um, it, the world expands as you move from like Chad's or not, I'm sorry, not Chad. Uh, the main character, uh, what was the main character's name? Oh, Simon. Yep. Simon, Simon's perspective on things and dealing with this like weird world that's in front of him, not just strange because it's a wasteland and he came from a vault, but strange because the very quirks of the video game are things that he's experiencing. Yeah. And the, then the fact that nobody dies or right, at the end of right. the first episode, he finally gives in to dark impulses, figured nobody's <laughs> around. So he can finally just kill Jad and be done with it. And then quickly finds out that the grave in the next episode is empty. Right, uh, right. And then, and he then also, it expands out from there. And right. Really, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. But um, he finds out that he also gets killed, ends up in the atomic shot purgatory before respawning and coming to terms <laughs> with trying to understand the mechanics of this world from a, a real world perspective. Uh, like even perk cards, how they work as genetic manipulators. They mm-hmm. turn, he, his friend Jake, uh, shares the cannibal perk with him, but can't figure out how to turn it off, and it ends badly for Jake. But <laughs> it gets, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it gets, it gets rough. Yeah, and then there's all the dark humor, and then even with the more recent uh, episodes, you're parroting um, like '80s horror films. 
Um, and there's, there's a lot of really good references and things that you're, you're pulling from so many different sources and the story keeps expanding and you're, you're following different groups of people at some point. It's not just Simon's perspective. Yeah, we, it's kind of an Easter egg buffet. There's a lot of nods and references and stuff in there. Um, everything from Alice in Wonderland to even Edward Gorey stories that I grew up with. Yeah. Yeah. And of course the really good creepy little girl ghoul voice. Yeah. I'm not going to spoil too much, but you, you gotta, you gotta listen to her cause she's super creepy. Well, some of the characters and scenarios ended up just kind of coming to me in dreams. Uh, that's where Susie and Ella came from. That's so weird. Yeah. You mentioned that before when we were talking. That's, yeah. Yeah. Man. So, um, so just so everybody knows that we're not, we're not just, this is not the, <laughs> the Chad, the Chad episode of, uh, Fallout Lorecast where we only talk about things that you haven't watched yet, um, or listened to yet. Uh, <laughs> Ken is specifically on my show today because we wanted to chat about some Fallout lore that we both find very interesting. And I know a lot of you will, will claim that Fallout New Vegas is probably your favorite game in the franchise. I know it was uh, very, I don't know, I don't know if influential is the right word, but it was very uh, interesting for me to play through. I, I came from, like you, I started with Fallout 3, went to Fallout New Vegas, and uh, the way that the world is uh, written and, I don't know, just uh, Obsidian and some of the original writers of the original games and seeing the way that they were using some of the content from the earlier games and bringing them back in and their handle of the the depth of the lore and the world and what's actually going on with things. Um, it just even felt so much deeper than Fallout 3. Yeah. And, uh, like I was watching sorry, a, a documentary uh, last week talking about how Obsidian threw the game together in a ridiculously short period of time. And even considering how buggy it was, uh, and even to this day, when I go back and replay it, it, it still crashes and, you know, you got weird glitches. But what they put into the game was just really amazing. And I, I love Fallout 3 because it was the first entry. But Fallout New Vegas has such replayability because there are so many different paths that you can choose in the end game. Um, as far as picking who to side with and how that impacts the world and how those factions look at you. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of who to side with in the factions, one of them is uh, connected to a very, very interesting individual who has some uh, some real world correlations and I guess inspiration. And uh, it's very mysterious when you first find out about him in the game. So I'll let you I'll let you do the intro here. Who who are we talking about today? We are talking about Robert Edwin House. Robert Edwin House. One Such of uh, yeah, one of out of all of the characters that I've experienced in Fallout, he is by far to me the most interesting and enigmatic um, and from a lore perspective had done so much to shape everything that we appreciate about Fallout, from Liberty Prime to the Pip-Boy. Um, he he was a modern-day Howard Stark kind of yeah. version of the character yeah. in the Fallout world. Yeah, and his influence uh, kind of, <laughs> sort of, I don't know if this is the best uh, analogy, but he's it's like he's got his tentacles in 
a little bit of everything. Like you mentioned, uh, the Pip-Boy and Robco Industries and uh, robots in general and uh, things going on before the war happened and some of the research he was doing. And I'm sure you're going to get into some of this stuff, but oh, yeah. um, very, very interesting stuff. And um, there was something else I was going to say, but uh, go ahead and go on. I'm sure it'll come back in my into my brain. Yeah, one of before we get into to him, um, I want to talk about the the person who inspired him. So when Obsidian started creating New Vegas, um, for whatever reason, they settled on the figure of Howard Hughes, who was a really a, a mid century genius of aviation. Um, and one of the more interesting characters in 20th century history. He was born to the Hughes Tool Company family in 1909, um, which should be familiar if you're familiar with New Vegas. H&H Tools uh-huh. um, yeah. stands for Howard Hughes. His father, <laughs> Howard Hughes Sr., was uh, an inventor and a businessman. And the younger Howard showed an unusual genius at a young age in science and technology. At age 11, he had built Houston's first wireless radio transmitter and became the first licensed ham operator by age 12. Um, He took apart his father's steam engine and built a motorized bicycle at the age of 12. I don't know about you, but at 12, I was still playing with Legos and watching cartoons, not, you know, building motorized bicycles. Yeah, I was really proud of the fact that I taught myself how to juggle with three balls. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, go me. (laughs) Uh, By 14, he he got his pilot's license, um, and quickly it became clear that he was a genius as far as mathematics, uh, engineering, and aeronautical engineering. He ended up at Caltech and later went to Rice University before forming the Hughes Aircraft Company. Um, and quickly made his way uh, up in the world. He broke several airspeed records and really revolutionized air travel. Um, He did, however, have some mental health challenges. Um, If you ever see the name, uh, what was it? Was it Aviator? It was the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah. about his life. It's it's really beautifully done, but it gives you kind of a nice snapshot of what uh, Howard Hughes's life was like. He had uh, signs of obsessive compulsive disorder and severe anxiety and became obsessed with uh, sanitation and germs. In fact, in 1954, he had his Chrysler New Yorker equipped with an aircraft grade filtration system that took up the whole trunk. (laughs) Um, He was super concerned about uh, germs and sanitation, which if you get the chance to meet Mr. House in New Vegas in person, um, he also has those same fears as far as his stasis chamber goes. Mm-hmm. He moved into yeah. the, the the desert inn in Las Vegas in November of 1966 and then refused to leave. So he simply bought out the place um, and made, <laughs> made the ninth floor penthouse his personal residence and then bought up five more hotels and casinos on the Strip. Um, he, another correlation, another similarity. Well, wait till you get to this quote. He wanted to change the image of New La- to Las Vegas to something more glamorous. And he wrote in a memo to an aide, I like to think of Las Vegas in terms of a well-dressed man in a dinner jacket and a beautifully jeweled and furred female getting out of an expensive car. He had this grand vision for what Las Vegas could be. 
But mm-hmm. around that same time, the obsession with atomic power and weaponry was at a high point here in the U.S. with testing being done in Arizona. And he became a real vocal opponent of nuclear testing and weaponry, fearing exposure to radiation and the potential for nuclear war. Um, all of which is really mirrored in the character that you end up meeting in New Vegas, in Robert House. Yeah, yeah, so much of that. Um, everything from his upbringing, uh, the tool company, to personality traits, to quirks, to uh, the Las Vegas connection, um, so much of that, the technology stuff, even the, the awareness of... Um, potential future war and nuclear bombs and uh, energy, that kind of thing. And also being a a really detached visionary that struggled all his life with being able to relate to people on human terms in the same way that Robert House has that same kind of detachment where he's almost so intelligent that he is emotionally stunted and unable to connect to people. Um, yeah. Yeah. One final, it's one of those, uh, 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 sorry to jump in. One of those, this is one of those theories that I have. And I think it, it, I don't know if it's so much of a theory, just just something I notice is that, uh, this is one of those things I talk to other people about. I, um, growing up, I was in gifted classes and those kinds of things. And then, uh, in my early twenties, I ended up actually, uh, doing some, um, substitute teaching and I ended up, uh, my ex-wife was a teacher and I ended up taking over a, um, middle school gifted program for three months while the regular teacher was on maternity leave. And, um, having studied gifted students and the way that they operate and how they use their minds. And most people, when they think about people like someone like, uh, you know, Robert house, for example, in this, in this scenario is the kind of, you think of them as a genius. And most people ascribe a certain level of, you know, giftedness and genius that kind of blend the two ideas. But really what ends up happening is that nobody is good at all the things all at the same time. It's like, it's like that we only get so many eggs and so many baskets. And in order for some of the eggs to be more eggs to be in some of the baskets, you have to steal them from the other baskets. Right. And you end up with these issues where, yeah, maybe they're phenomenal. Maybe they're, you know, designing uh, (laughs) automated bikes out of locomotive parts at the age of 12. But they're also really struggling with how to talk to another human being, which seems super easy to most people, you know. So it's this weird imbalance. And also they become quickly misunderstood and misinterpreted by people Mm -hmm. who don't really get who they right. are or, or where they're going. A great example of that is Steve Jobs, who also was, was a true visionary who unfortunately is no longer with us, but really shaped decades of multiple aspects of our lives as far as inventing new technologies. And he too was someone who was notoriously difficult to work with because he had an almost fanaticism when it came to getting his vision perfect um, mm-hmm. he would commonly just yell at people and he would have difficulty relating to people in the same way. Yeah. I, I, I liken it to this idea. And this is something that I thought about back when I was studying philosophy is that most people, when given a, uh, like a mental problem, like not, not mental disability, but like a, like a logical system type problem will think one or two steps 
They will, they will solve the initial problem and then they'll realize, oh, there's another step, maybe, and then move to that next step. But very few people will take a concept, a, a logical problem, proposition, and follow it all the way to its absolute logical conclusion where there you achieve some sort of resolution. And right. I think that, that that is a trait of highly intelligent people is that they realize you don't just go one step and stop or two steps and stop. You go to the logical conclusion. So in this case, these great thinkers are constantly operating multiple steps down the line of this logical process. And when they present this idea to somebody on their team or somebody who doesn't have the same vision they have, they present the the very the, the initial problem that they're dealing with and then the solution that maybe they're eight steps down this process. But of right. course, the answer to the eighth question is not the same thing as the answer to the first question. So, they, so the people who don't understand that vision think that they're wrong. Right. And it's it's this weird dilemma. And, and I've seen it. I've seen it happen lots of times where like you have to have patience. You have to let them go through the whole process and then discuss the whole process, not just the first step. So anyway, to get off my my rambling, these are some of the things I talk about on, <laughs> on robots thoughts. <laughs> but um but yeah, it's, I mean, you're right. These, these are actual things that real, real intellectuals deal with and struggle with because they, because of this, they have a hard time relating to you or me or the average person who, you know, is just kind of functioning day to day. It's, they're so stuck on these, these deeper concepts and these deeper ideas, you know, like, um, when you bring up jobs, one of the things jobs did was that he kept like a really, really clean, like awkwardly empty house. Do you know about this? I do, yeah. It's interesting yeah. because even Albert Einstein was notorious for only having a handful of clothes in his closet that was always the same outfit because he didn't mm -hmm. want to spend any time of his day, any brain power in trying to figure out what he was going to wear. They were right. keeping kind of just everything kind of unfettered and uncluttered so they could focus on what they felt was the most important, which is the big ideas. Yeah. I mean, there was years ago, I actually uh, threw out all of my socks and I only bought multiples of the same black socks. So I don't actually have to like match any socks. <laughs> just wear the same black. <laughs> now I do have some other socks over the years. You have kids and they give you funny socks and then you, you want to wear funny socks. But I, I had the same kind of idea when it came to socks. And I remember arguing with uh, my ex spouse uh, back in the day. I was like, you know, why can't we be like freaking cartoon characters and just wear the same clothes every day? But you can't do that because society won't let you. <laughs> but I'm like, I don't care if I, my shirt and my pants are the same every day. It's just easier. <laughs> the man ain't going to keep me down. <laughs> but I, I couldn't, I never tried because I've, you know, there's the part of me that's like, no, I have to actually get along in society and deal with other humans. Right. But maybe one, one of these days I'll finally, I'll finally crack. And that part of me won't give give, you know, a crap about whatever anybody else thinks. And then I'll just go super like deep. I don't know ridiculous and just like stew over a thing <laughs> just become obsessive i think there's an age where you become charmingly eccentric and you're allowed uh -huh. to do that kind of stuff without people just frowning on you yeah maybe once my kids are adults and they can actually deal with the um, embarrassment of like their father being this weird recluse who wears the same clothes every day and, <laughs> and only does this like like deeply dives into like one really specific thing there's dad Even again if he's wearing this ugly anywhere. christmas sweater in july <laughs> yeah yeah why does he only have he has 12 of the same christmas sweater that's weird <laughs> they're comfy why would i need something else 
anyway, I, I kind of derailed the conversation. So no, no. Um, let's let's pull it back to to Mr. House because he's infinitely more interesting than I am. So one last thing before we actually get into the story of Robert Edwin House um, is Howard Hughes's long-term love interest, who was Jane Russell. Um, when you first meet Mr. House, when you step off the elevator, you're greeted by a bot named Jane, which is another reference to Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. All these little tie-ins. Yeah, yeah. I feel like somebody was like a really big fan and they were like, hey guys, I got this great idea for a character. Why don't we do Howard Hughes and we'll just change some of the, some of the words around the stuff. <laughs> if you take a look at the picture of Howard Hughes in front of one of his aircraft, the picture and the pose is exactly the same as the one that is in the golf club at the NCR occupying at Lake mm-hmm. Mead, where instead of uh, House standing in front of Liberty Prime, it's Howard Hughes in front of his airplane. I did a yeah. side-by-side comparison. I'll share it with you so you can uh, share it on Twitter. But yeah. if you guys yeah, hear I've this, that, take a look I've at the picture. picture. The side-by-side is just awesome as far as looking at it. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Now we get to the fun so, stuff. Yeah, so let's dive into Mr. House himself. What's his story? He was born on June 25th, 2020. So mark your calendars because next June 25th, he's going to be born. Oh, we should we should do a uh, happy birthday, uh, Robert House Day. We should next summer. We should have a celebration. I need to put that on a calendar somewhere. So I remember to a do lot it. of a lot of people were putting them uh, reminders to themselves on Reddit not to forget. But uh, he was born to a wealthy Nevada tool magnate. Um, his parents were killed in a freak accident involving an auto gyro and lightning when he was at a young age. Um, we find out a lot of his backstory when you're exploring the H&H, Tools fa- uh, H&H Tool Factory in Las Vegas um, and find out a lot of uh, his story from the terminal entries of his half-brother, Anthony. He had used some underhanded means after the death of his parents to wrestle the shares of the family business and the fortune away from Robert after the death of their father. Um, right, yeah. Anthony had... Uh, kind of a, uh, I think because it was his stepbrother, he perceived himself to be the only legitimate son of the business. And so he felt he was the only one worthy of its legacy. Um, So he seized control of the H&H tool company using his lawyers to cut Robert completely out of the picture, out of the inheritance. Um, Regardless of that, the company did pretty well under his control. Uh, The employees had lots of benefits. Uh, They remained happy. Um, Anthony did, however, similar to Howard Hughes, have some pretty bizarre behavior. Um, On one occasion, he wore a special hat in public and refused to make eye contact with anyone um, because he believed people could steal his thought energy by looking at him too long. Mm -hmm. I'm putting this down on my list of eccentric things to do once (laughs) I hit that certain age. That's going to be on there. Oh, and um, to to put this in context of people who have been listening to this show, uh, 2020 is 57 years before the Great War. So he, Howard Hughes was 50, Howard Hughes, (laughs) Mr. House (laughs) was 57 when the bombs drop in the Fallout games and had spent, uh, you know, these early years of his life building this company up from like, what was he, 22 or something when he started 
when he founded his company? Oh, Robco. It was, uh, it was on his 22nd birthday. Yeah. Yeah. 22. Yeah. He, uh, while Anthony was doing that, um, and even though he'd been completely cut off without a penny, he was somehow able to enroll at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology at the age of 18. And quickly, his, his genius became apparent. Um, he really applied himself to studies there. After graduation, he returned home to Las Vegas um, in 2022 and founded Robco Industries on June 25th, 2042, which was his 22nd birthday. Mm -hmm. Over the next seven years, it would become one of the most profitable corporations in the fallout world, um, due in no small part to his genius and business sense, but it also became one of the most influential corporations in world history. By the time he turned 30, he was a billionaire three times over. Um, he had, um, even then, and it's telling in the way that uh, the interactions he has with the courier, he is a visionary who liked to shape things almost like a chess grandmaster from a distance, um, acquiring pawns and putting things in place. But he did not micromanage. In a lot of instances, um, he structured his holdings and corporations through multiple shell corporations, almost like a maze to diminish or hide his role in a lot of some of these other companies or technologies. Um, Robco being pretty much the only obvious company that he was behind. Um, they had some really aggressive expansion policies during those seven years uh, that helped them to acquire a lot of other companies and bring two technologies um, under their umbrella. In 2075, they created the Unified Operating System or uh, and Retros BIOS that became the standard for terminals and mainframes across all of the 13th Commonwealths. So any of the terminals mm -hmm. that you log in and you go through that irritating game that we've been playing for a long time where you're trying to guess the <laughs> word. Yeah, that's them. Right. That's um, them. It's their fault. <laughs> that's their fault. Stupid game. Yeah. Yeah, and that was only two years before the, the before the bombs dropped. So Correct. one of the yep. things I find very interesting about the way all of this stuff lines up is so many of these really important um, things that we see in the games, you know, uh, 2,500, 200 years later, are uh, most of them only really came to fruition in just the last few years. And sometimes in like the last month or the last day before the bombs dropped. And right. Robert House has some interesting occurrences with that as well. Yeah. Um, within the next year or so, by 2076, their Robco OS became the standard for military-grade uh, military security systems. Um, they developed all kinds of robots, iBots, Protectrons, SentryBot lines that were the most common types of robotics developed before the war. Um, they were commonly pit at odds against the General Atomics International's own product lines and went head-to-head -head in developing a lot of products. Um, one of the products that they developed was Robert Mayflower's Stealth Boy, which they reverse-engineered sometime between 2066 and 2077 from captured Chinese stealth technology. Mm -hmm. um, they also invested heavily on shaping public perception of Rodco, um, investing in exhibits, public interest campaigns. Um, they did a joint exposition at the Museum of Technology in Washington, D.C. with the General Atomics. 
international. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, all of it, it it's it's in, it's always interesting to me how much of these um, the stories are actually fleshed out between the different moving pieces. We've talked a lot about the different factions and individuals and those kinds of things, but even companies like Robco, Repcon, like uh, the companies that you see over and over again in these games, each have their own uh, histories and connections. There's this like spider web of everybody who was, you know, organizations, companies, people, all that stuff. And what's cool is when you, as you dig into terminal entries and notes and you start to piece together all of the stuff in game, aside from reading it out of game as people kind of assemble stuff together, there's a lot of drama um, and covert stuff going on and um, people kind of taking down companies from within. Um, Especially when we talk about Repcon Aerospace, which became one of their Robco's most valuable assets that they wanted to acquire through any means necessary. Um, Robco began acquiring shares of the company between 2075 and 2076 before they would take over the company completely after internal power struggles had brought it down from within. Um, the other company that was attempting to acquire Repcon at the same time was Poseidon Energy, the front for the Enclave. They too yeah. were trying to really get their hands into Repcon. Um, Carl Rook, who worked for Robco's security division, was put in as vice president of Repcom after the takeover and had started improving security within the company, partly to prevent Poseidon Energy from gaining access to any trade secrets. Um, Robert House started using the company for a weapons research program for Colonel Moretti of the U.S. military and repurposed a lot of Repcon's proprietary rocket technology uh, in creating plasma rockets to specialize in rocket manufacturing, uh, production of alternate fuel sources, and also developing plasma and fusion-based sources, primarily for the U.S. government. Yeah, and in uh, going back to the Enclave, you can you can it makes sense now that we understand that the Enclave was interested in the potential to leave the planet if necessary. Yeah, and that was uh, that's why they'd be interested in rockets. Was, was that <laughs> it the sense. was it Van Buren the abandoned project? I think there was an or was it Vsat? Uh, one of them was supposed to actually one of them. take us into space, which would have been kind of cool. Yeah, oh, man, I never remember specifics around specific names. I always have to look stuff up again. But yeah, yeah. So it, it makes sense that that you know they would have to double down on security with an organization like that, kind of you know nefariously, uh, you know, hungrily looking at their their products. I guess you could say it's interesting. Um, as we get towards the end of this, we'll talk about something specific. That Robert House wanted to achieve. And even way back then, he was kind of putting his pieces in place to acquire the means to get off the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, the plasma rocket program at Repcon had a mole operating for the Enclave, Julie Masters. Um, she was leaking information on the development of the project Poseidon Energy. Uh, she was later detected and caught by Repcon's IT specialist, Sarah Wang, who had decoded them, but there wasn't enough evidence to take official action against Poseidon. It didn't matter anyway because the Great War was approaching. Um, 
one of the other things that that you find uh, is the matter modulator project that was completed in 2077, which was the mm-hmm. first fully working prototype um, that was developed. Um, their project, I think it's sim- simul, simul schematics, um, were also leaked to Poseidon Energy and became the urban plasma rifle. They were going to go into full military service, um, but unfortunately, Julia Masters, who was supposed to intercept the prototype that was on its way from Repcon to the Department of Defense, never got the chance because the Great War broke out, and that was the end of her. Yeah, yeah, man. Uh, that that moment put so many things that were like in the process of happening. You know, had had the war broken out a month later, so much would have been different. Yeah. It's really interesting the way that, uh, and, and of course, you know, they're writing the story. So, you know, the story writers know this, but it's really kind of cool how so much hinges on just kind of this one moment, uh, you know, whether it's Maxon and the Brotherhood or it's, you know, Robert House or stuff going on with Enclave or stuff going up on Fallout 76 uh, right before the vault is released. You know, like uh, there are all these moments where things come right up to this moment and had time just gone a little bit longer things would be different. Yeah. Even, uh, well, in the instance of house, a day would have made all the difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And he, so uh, I'm sure you're going to go into this. He was, uh, doing some predictions based on world situations and socioeconomics and those kinds of things. Yeah. We're, um, we're going to talk about that, but his predictions yeah. were startlingly accurate, like freakily. So, Right. So, okay, go ahead. I'm sure you'll get to that in a minute, but go, go ahead. With yeah, your, before we get to, to what happened after the Great War and, and what House became and did, um, we'll talk a little bit about the technologies, which are the kind of cool stuff that we appreciate, a lot of which were developed as joint ventures. Um, so the Pip-Boy um, was, is one of the most iconic things to come out of the, the Fallout franchise. Um, the joint venture was developed with Vault-Tec to place the Pip-Boy 2000 and Pip-Boy 3000 as the personal information processors for all Vault dwellers. Um, it really is one of the most successful ventures in the history of, of American industry at that time anyway. With the Pip-Boy model 1.0, um, you see in the video at the beginning of Fallout 4, which is just this big, ungainly yeah. kind of... It looks yeah. it looks almost like the Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> right, yeah, it's a big thing, and the, the, looks, the engineers are, like, tinkering with it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like holding up a car, and the screen is, like, the size of a business card. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, but it was highly, highly cumbersome. Um, they would continue to develop the Pip-Boy. Uh, the 2000 models would be distributed to the California vaults. Um, the Pip-Boy 3000 model was distributed to vaults in Washington, D.C. in the Mojave Desert. And then the Mark IV version of the 3000 series would be distributed to vaults in New Boston that we see in the beginning of Fallout 4 uh, when you first get the Pip-Boy off the dead scientist and open the vault door for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the other cool crossover things that they did was with the Nuka-Cola Corporation. So when you're in Nuka World, the Robco Battle Zone was developed with them um, in the Nuka World Park. Um, 
in 76, they had a venture with Hornwright Industrial Mining Company and Atomic Mining Services in Appalachia to bulldoze and take land from a lot of the residents of the Cranberry Bog to develop the uh, former Watoga National Park into the city of the future with the Robco facility nearby, providing them with jobs and advanced technologies. Uh, the concept of housing and completely owning your staff is kind of an interesting one. Years ago, I'd traveled to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and became kind of interested in the concept of, of that factory. And at the time that it was it was developed, it was common for companies to have company stores build housing. Um, and it was kind of a closed loop. You weren't really paying out real wages because essentially the what you were paying out in shares for the store or even housing was all controlled by you anyway. So they'd just be getting right. groceries. You were essentially supplying them with food, clothing, and uh, housing, but you weren't really paying them any real wages. Yeah. Um, Sebastian on the Outer Worlds podcast talks about how uh, there's a situation very similar to that in the upcoming Outer Worlds games, which is, again, another connection to Fallout New Vegas and Obsidian and all that. So it seems that they're taking similar ideas and moving that into their new game. So I can't wait to play that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the, the best projects that they had was number 38917. It was a military contract for the U.S. government that they did in cooperation with the General Atomics International Corporation to collaborate on the creation of a combat robot to liberate Anchorage, Alaska from Chinese occupation, uh, as well as demoralizing the enemy. Thus, Liberty Prime was born. Um, <laughs> right. The challenge um, was in delivering a, a working prototype and model into the field that would function. Um, General Constantine Chase, who, who got the project underway, um, wanted them to deliver it in a very specific time frame. But it had all sorts of issues, which ironically enough could have been why House had a lot of issues with his own software. Um, the original version of Liberty Prime that we see in Fallout 3, when it was constructed, was 40 feet tall, was fully heavily armored, had an eye laser, technical nuclear bombs, but the problem was its combat subroutines um, were not completed. The software had loads of bugs, and it had serious power system issues that could not be resolved. By the time um, they had really started working on it and trying to get it completed, it was too late. Uh, Anchorage was liberated, and so it just kind of sat in the Pentagon, just kind of not doing anything until it was discovered mm -hmm. by the Brotherhood. Yeah. Oh, I think you cut out. Are you there? Can you hear me? There you are. There we are. You're back. I'm back. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you're just talking about uh, the Pentagon, and then that was about all I heard. Yeah. So that was Liberty Prime. Um, mm -hmm. Aside from everything that he created, there are some other kind of 
cool nods to his personal life, which we don't get a lot of. Um, when you're playing in Fallout 4 and you head to the Cabot house, you meet um, or you read Imogene Cabot's journal entry. Read the one for November 9th, 2076. And she becomes really concerned about the end of days with things ratcheting it up and the talk of nuclear war. And she says uh, in the journal entry, things are going from bad to worse. The things Robert tells me, most people don't even know how bad it is. And here we sit safe in our little cabot, family bubble of privilege. I've tried to talk to Jack about it, but he's in his own world as usual. Um, House was known to be a bit of a playboy. He had a connection to the Institute. And even though his name, his last name isn't there, um, it's fairly obviously him. Um, Another Fallout 4 nod is uh, delivered by Deacon. When you're approaching Deezer in Covenant, Deacon will trigger a dialogue option where he says, Command Override, Vocal Audio, House, comma, Robert, Access Core Programming. And Deacon claims that it was House's personal security override code that he'd won in a poker game. Huh. That's so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. Um, in the DLC for the Old World Blues, if you go to Higgs Village, um, you'll find a portrait of Robert House uh, that has been punctured by several knives. A Dr. O at Big uh, Mountain had an intense jealousy for House uh, for being a more well-known and successful robot roboticist. Mm -hmm. uh, another kind <laughs> of interesting tie-in to him. Yeah, yeah. So, so where does it go from here? He's got this, he's got all this technology, he's building everything out, he's predicting doom and gloom for the world, right? Yep. As, as he's in New Vegas kind of preparing uh, the, luck, the Lucky 38 for the Great War, there's one last thing that he does. Um, he didn't forget his stepbrother really screwing him over. And he slowly destroyed the H, H tool company on the stock market, uh, aggressively acquiring stock as an act of vengeance, finally buying out the company completely, and then leaving his brother in charge of just a single factory and kind of <laughs> left to succumb to his own madness and paranoia. Um, he, by the time um, you make your way back in there, you, you quickly understand that uh, Anthony House lost his mind um, with advanced schizophrenia. He had taken out more severe security measures in the company. Um, eventually, his human resources manager that always had kind of been able to calm him down, Cindy Lou Kreb, um, he even thought that she was against him. On June 19th, 2077, he was convinced that every single one of his employees in the company was in on a conspiracy and that Robert was coming to physically remove him from his office, which would have been a feat because Robert was in stasis at this point and wasn't going anywhere. Um, he locked down the H&H &H tools factory and activated its security systems. And that was the end of all of the employees in there. Interestingly, though, when you go through the factory, the only body that you don't find is his, which is a little, huh. I don't know if that's an oversight or if that was meant to be or something just a, Or, yeah, or sometimes, um, this is one of the things I've noticed too, is they'll leave an opening for some other potential something that yeah. isn't necessarily included yet. Yeah. So that, that could be a nod to something else that we discover in some future game. It's kind of an opening, a story, a story gap, you know? 
So House was finally getting everything in place. Um, he had power. He had the technologies. Now he needed a power base. So now we come to the Lucky 38 Casino. And I've looked everywhere. I can't figure out if he acquired it or built it. Um, Howard Hughes just acquired hotels as opposed to building them himself. And I couldn't find any mention of House actually constructing it, just that he had completely gutted and repurposed it uh, for a very specific endgame scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, he designed a mathematical model that he used in business himself that allowed him to predict with great accuracy market, political, and overall economic conditions with the year and month and day being any variable that you could plug into it. And because of that, he was able to calculate at, in 2065 that nuclear war would occur within 15 years. Um, he also found out through his military contacts that 77 Chinese warheads were aimed specifically at Las Vegas, uh, which is right. yeah. kind of a lot of warheads for just one. It's a lot of warheads for one little <laughs> <Yeah>. town. <laughs> I mean, you know, Las Vegas isn't that big. <laughs> Gosh. So he went to work on his secret plan to ensure that the city would survive the apocalypse and that he would live to see the world after the war. So he started retrofitting the uh, Lucky 38 Casino, putting in multiple mainframes with satellite uplinks that would allow him to disable the vast majority of the missiles while in flight. And then he designed an array of high-powered laser cannons that would be installed on the roof of the Lucky 38 to deal with any of them that he would miss disabling. To preserve mm-hmm. himself, uh, kind of like the, the story of Walt Disney, he sometime between 2065 and 2077 had his body permanently connected to a life support system to take care of all of his physiological needs and also extend his life indefinitely. Um, eventually, pretty much turning himself into an enormous supercomputer, being able to connect to this vast information net. Um, yeah. The one thing... There- oh, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, I remember playing through New Vegas and the first time you actually interact and see a face on a screen and wondering like, okay, is this a guy in a room in front of a camera? Is this a brain in a machine? Is this a, an AI? Like what is actually going on here? Yeah. And that mystery being so fun to, to dig into in the game. Well, I think depending on your intelligence, you have the option of actually calling him out for what he is. Like realizing that that he uh, is is a sentient person talking. I can't remember what the exact term is, but mm-hmm. that was one of the options. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think I, that was my playthrough, and I've, I've described this before on the show where I was a really dumb, uh, terrible person. <laughs> I think I had to explain this to you, didn't I? Yes. His name was Bitch Fist. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes, that was Bitch Fist. So he did not have the intelligence to understand much of anything that was going on. <laughs> so it left me just speculating <laughs> in the moment. The one thing that that he uh, could not control, um, he had the hardware in place. The problem was the operating system, um, which was heavily flawed. He w- it's always the OS would not be always able to to 
act as quickly as he needed to. So he designed a next generation OS that would be printed on a platinum chip in Sunnyvale, California. And it was on October 22nd, 2077, one day before the Great War. And the chip is unique uh, in that it acted almost like a, a USB drive, but it was also uh, an access card. So it had a, a high capacity storage containment in it that would allow the new OS to be installed and then passed on. And it was designed mm -hmm. not just to upgrade his Securitrons, but every access of his missile defense grid to make it more effective. Um, unfortunately, the following day, as it was to be delivered by Courier, the Great War broke out. And it's, right. it's interesting to note that his calculations, which by then were 15 years old for when the missiles would hit Las Vegas, were off by less than 20 hours, which is striking yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. Of the 77 warheads that were headed to Las Vegas, um, he was able to use his network mainframes to predict, decode, and force transmit disarm codes to 59 of them, neutralizing them. Laser cannons on the roof of the Lucky 38 destroyed nine more, but he didn't have enough time to take out the rest because he didn't have the platinum chip. Um, the effort to do all of this was devastating to him in stasis. The software glitches had set off a cascade of system crashes. The Lucky 38 core went into meltdown, uh, so he had to take it offline to prevent a disaster. And it took him five years of sheer will, battling ongoing power outages and ever-increasing system crashes before he was able to reboot his data core with an older version of the operating system. And after this, it was so mentally exhausting that he essentially fell into a coma for 53 years. Yeah, so he's already old. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, retirement old, retirement age by the time he's doing this and in stasis and is now in a coma for 50 something years and is basically just, uh, you know, or 61 years. I'm sorry. I see it here in the, in the notes that I have 61 years. Um, that, that's like, holy moly. He was in a coma for 53 years, but he woke up in 2130, uh, which could be the difference. Um, oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. He dispatched a few Securitrons as surveillance tools to kind of see what was going on and patrol the wasteland. Um, in 2274, NCR scouts arrived at Hoover Dam and were detected by his agents, at which point he saw an opportunity in them that he had been waiting for. At this point, he activated an army of Securitrons in the Lucky 38 that left through the open door and wiped out hostile tribals and survivors that had made the strip their home in the meanwhile. Um, after taking over the strip and securing it as a base of power, he would strike deals with three of the tribes, giving them clothes, tools, and supplies from the Lucky 38 stockpiles in exchange for renovating the city and preparing for the arrival of the NCR. One of the tribal right. gangs it was called the Mojave Boot Raiders, and a young tribal among them named Benny gained House's attention. They were tasked with renovating the Topps Casino and renamed themselves the chairman. Um, Mr. House, meanwhile, had, had become kind of a, a mythic figure. He'd been known as the Ghost Man of Vegas, and later on in the DLC, when you meet the Courier U Ulysses, um, 
Ulysses treated him as almost an, an old world spirit or boogeyman. <laughs> right. Man, that's a good that's a good name too. The Ghost Man of Vegas. The uh, other thing that he acquired after waking back up was Vault Twenty One. Um, you find out that he has uh, a lucky special of ten. And according to the backstory, uh, he won ownership of that vault from its inhabitants by beating them in blackjack. And in fact, if you play in New Vegas with a luck of 10, it it becomes ridiculously easy to beat blackjack Mm. each time. (laughs) Um, Doc Mitchell and uh, Sheldon Maintrobe hated his guts because he had taken over Vault 21 and filled most of it with concrete. We did a whole Vault 21 episode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. So they were thrilled. Um, so from the Lucky 38 now, he, he's able to manipulate the NCR into financing and protecting his interests uh, with the strip quietly and almost secretly operating under his control. Since before the Great War, he'd been uh, building this kind of long game, knowing that he couldn't save the world, but he could save Las Vegas, and more importantly, use it as a power base to take over the Mojave Wasteland and eventually spread that influence to rebuild society with him as an autocratic ruler, um, his ultimate goal being to use the NCR's economy to restart technological development to bring society back to life, with New Vegas being the center of that as an independent superpower. One of uh, his security tron scouts found uh, Caesar's Legion sitting on right on top of one of his trump cards at the fort, his Securitron army, um, which he needed, but more importantly, he needed to recover the platinum chip. So after 200 years, he needed to, to chase that down, find it, um, restart the Lucky 38 as well, uh, the reactor to become a limitless supply of power so it wouldn't need to rely on the Hoover Dam. So they would be able to be completely self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. He hire, hires the couriers at this point to to go chase down the chip. Um, all but one of them was carrying garbage, just useless junk, to throw anybody right. off the trail. And hires mercenary teams to clear the road ahead of them so there wouldn't be any trouble. Benny, meanwhile, learns of both the platinum chip and that something important was buried under the fort, but he didn't know what it was. And using a Securitron he had disabled with uh, the help of Emily Ortal, he reprogrammed it to become Yes Man, and through Yes Man, found out the route that the courier would be traveling with the platinum chip. He hired um, some of the great cons, Jessup, McMurphy, and Chance, to track the courier down. And at the start of New Vegas, you you come upon that scene where he's taking the chip from you and leaving you with a bullet in your Mm -hmm. head. The one thing that Benny didn't know is that House was kind of hedging his bets and personally had sent Victor to tail you to make sure nothing happened to you or the chip. And after digging you out of the grave, was able to get you to Doc Mitchell, who, of course, patches you up. Yep. Yep. And then all the way. Oh man, excuse me. <laughs> My throat all of a sudden just was like, oh, got to swallow. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden we're back at the beginning of uh, New Vegas and you are getting patched up by the dock and looking at yourself, picking out your stats and your special scores and all that stuff. Yeah. And man. then the events of New Vegas play out as they do in the game with, with you bringing the platinum chip back to him after taking care of Benny. Um, dealing with outside interests with the Omertas and the Boomers and the Brotherhood of Steel. Um, 
this is where it starts to get a little interesting. And when I first played through the game, um, I was younger. So I think most of us have this anti-authoritarian streak in us. And I immediately sure. decided yeah, yeah. that I disliked him. And on the first yeah. playthrough, I kind of went with the wild card option and took Yes Man for myself and you know got rid of house and installed Yes Man, who at the end of the game is kind of like creepily exerting his own influence. Like, hey, hey, <laughs> right. I, I know that I work for you, but I'm going to take myself offline now and I'm going to go do my own thing, which is a little mm. alarming. Um, I think in hindsight now, I don't know if it's because I'm older or you have a, a bigger worldview, um, I, I take another look at House and kind of what he wanted to do and struggle with and what his plans were. And um, he wasn't selfish by any means. Um, he had significant character flaws in not being able to see or relate to people in any human way. Like even in in right. when you start to, he tasks you with going out and kind of tie up these loose ends. Um, he simply doesn't want variables. He, he likes equations that are tidy. He wants nothing in the way of his end game so he can kind of execute his plan and kind of eliminate stuff that he can't really control, which ultimately is his, his one failing, that the human element, unlike robotics or his own empire or own self, he has no control over. Um, mm -hmm. If, in fact, mm -hmm. you decide to off him... <laughs> When you open up the stasis chamber, he's just completely baffled by why you would do this and why you would sacrifice the opportunity that he was presenting you with. Um, right. And this is not logical. Yeah. He, he yeah. just doesn't get it <laughs> at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I, my uh, uh, bitch fist decided, of course, to fight the man. So <laughs> that, that was the outcome I, I got. Yeah, and while he 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 has kind of this um, Orwellian all-encompassing security system where he has eyes and ears everywhere, he doesn't really meddle in people's lives. And even uh, at one point in dialogue says, I have no interest in abusing others, just as I have no interest in legislating or otherwise dictating what people do in their private time, nor have I any mm -hmm. interest in being worshipped as some kind of machine god messiah. I am impervious to such corrupting ambitions, but autocracy, firm control in the hands of a technological and economic visionary, yes, that Vegas shall have. Yeah. Man, it's very it's a very interesting dilemma that's very different from a lot of the other stuff that we come across with different factions in these games in that he you know like you, like you said generally good intentions. Yeah. The method could be better, but generally good intentions. Um and he, I guess a lot of a lot of villains have what they think are good intentions, but he I mean he was defending the city that he wanted to survive from warheads from from nukes in order to create a you know potentially new cradle of civilization to come out from this because he realized that you know his production his predictions were going to come true and he needed to do something in order to handle the situation and he probably felt like he was one of the few people who actually could being that he was wealthy and highly intelligent and equipped 
Yeah, and in a way, it's almost heartbreaking because if you really press him on what his his plan is and what he wants to do, he says, give me 20 years and I'll reignite the high technology development sectors, 50 years and I'll have people in orbit, 100 years and my colony ships will be headed for the stars to search for planets unpolluted by the wrath and folly of a bygone generation. I think of anybody, anybody else saying that in this game, you'd think they're they're batshit crazy. <laughs> but oh, for yeah. him to say it, I have no doubt that that is what he would have done and accomplished and could have accomplished. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't looked into this, but do you know if there is a canon ending for this game? I don't think there is. What I do know is that there are some interesting caveats that kind of play out if the one thing that i balked at simply because i liked them i liked the brotherhood of steel in fallout 3 and i liked the brotherhood of steel in new vegas i did not like the brotherhood of steel in fallout 4 um yeah i I felt the same way yeah uh, because once you meet them um especially in new vegas they're they're kind of likable so uh, I was struck the first playthrough with this dilemma of, okay, you just want me to kill them and not have a, have a conversation? Right. Or um, he, he knows from a positioning standpoint that the ethos of the Brotherhood simply does not work with what he wants to do. So invariably, they will always be in the way. And it's interesting that if you side with him and play the game through, you eventually find out that the Brotherhood uh, degenerates into raiders, essentially, and start harassing travelers in the Mojave to seize technology from them by force. So mm-hmm. if you side with him, he becomes uh, they become exactly what he predicts they will be, that their ethos kind of uh, for black and white, for hoarding technology and taking it from others, um, ends up being exactly who they are by the time we meet them in Fallout 4, where they're just kind of bullies and in a way no different yeah. than the Enclave was. Yeah, yeah, man, maybe House was right. I mean, he was so good at predicting things in the future, he figured out the equations. Yeah. You know, <laughs> maybe we all should have sided with House. Man, that's it's really you did a good good job tying a whole bunch of these uh, pieces together. That and, and I mentioned it a few times as you've talked about things that we've already talked about. But that was this is one of the things I'm excited about with this show is as we've been going through these bits and pieces, you, you can kind of see how everything connects more and more. I mean, you really out of all of the people that you meet or the the choices that you you can have as far as choosing a faction, um, the, he's the only person who actually saves your life. And he very easily could have dispatched Victor just to chase Benny down and get the platinum chip back. But instead, he saves you, gives you a job, and um, doesn't really get in your way. He gives you a startling degree of levity in terms of how you want to execute um, meeting these people with these factions, deal with certain things. He'll ask for your opinions on certain things. Um, and really is a boss who doesn't micromanage you. So he's not a, a terrible person or a terrible boss, right. but his his fatal flaw is his inability to to see the human equation, which ultimately ends up being his downfall if you decide to just kill him. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious now about our viewers. One of the things I like to do on the show is, um, ask questions of our viewers or our listeners. We'll just call you our viewers from now on. <laughs> You're viewing us with your ears. Uh, but I'm curious. I'll, I'll put up a poll. I, I'd like to find out what you guys did in Fall of New Vegas uh, on your first playthrough. I mean, uh, many of us have played multiple times, but initially, what was your response to House and how did you uh, interact with him? I, I know I felt like the face in the machine was was going to be sinister. You know, I mean, there's so much there's so much in these games that are like. Uh, nope, this is not to be trusted. Nope, this is not to be trusted either. Nope, there's going to be something bad here. You know, oh, these guys are probably good, but they're probably something bad going on somewhere. You know, like nothing is particularly black and white. Um, but especially when it came to Robert House and this idea that he was somehow behind this powerful faction of robots that were controlling an entire city and, you know, a face and machine. There was something very sinister about that. And we see that, uh, we see that in Modus in uh, Fallout 76. Uh, this is one of those things that comes about. But um, there's clearly so much more going on with Robert House and his actual intentions, which he isn't always, the like you mentioned, he's not the best at communicating with humans and, and really spelling that all out. So I'd be interested to find out what you guys, what you guys did. Do you have anything else for us, Ken? That was it. That is the life and yeah. times of Robert Edwin House. <laughs> that is all. That is, that is the story. Yeah. And I guess the story picks up from, from there and, and whatever else's stories are. Yeah. Out of, so out of, you were going to say something? Yeah. But out of all the characters, uh, he, he by far is, is someone I find fascinating. I think the 20th century had some really amazing iconic figures um in a time where you really could be a self-made man um you yeah. find walt disney yeah. or even in the bioshock games i'm a huge mm -hmm. fan of andrew ryan who similar to robert house had this kind of grand vision for the future but again it's the human equation and the corruptibility of people that ends up kind of bringing it down from within humans silly humans it's all silly humans all silly humans well thank you for joining me again today um this has been super fun yeah. uh hopefully we'll be able to do this again sometime in the future and um to like let's wrap this up let's let everybody know how to get a hold of you and how to check out your stuff and plug into what you're doing yeah um give us a listen on uh we're on anchor itunes spotify um it the it's listed under chad a fallout 76 story you can find the links right on our website fallout 76 podcast.com which uh also is our handle for facebook instagram twitter um find us there give us a listen right now we're in the middle of editing our next episode which is the atomic shop purgatory <laughs> so oh man that's great. i have a lot of fun with that we find out what happens between when you die and when you respawn and what it costs you each time you die and have to come back mm. Mm. I'm, I'm looking forward to it um and for any of my my viewers any of my viewers <laughs> if you go check out a show and you, you like it drop a drop a review in there and i'm, I'm putting this out there hashtag it robot sent me 
because I think this is going to be fun. <laughs> like if you're part of this Robots Radio community and you take one of our recommendations or you review one of the shows on the network because he came from another show on the network or whatever, uh, put it, do a hashtag robot sent me or go follow, go follow Ken on Twitter and drop a hashtag robot sent me when you say hi or something like that. I want to see how much of that we can get going on because I think that'll be a lot of fun. The the dialogue so. is very early fallout. Um, I, there's a, a warning at the top of each show. Be aware that we use colorful language because because it's it's a realistic <laughs> survival situation. Yes, yeah. yes. You may not want to listen to it with your kids. Yeah. But if you have a bunch of coworkers in a workspace where you can put stuff like this on and all all laugh while you're working all day, then it might be the perfect podcast for you. Shout out to uh, there's, there's a, what you a few people who follow us who are who are general contractors, so they'll actually have it playing at the job site, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of jokes that are especially fun to laugh yeah. at with, with your friends. Um, awesome. Well, thank you for joining me again. And uh, yeah, and uh, we'll get together again sometime soon, I'm sure. And listeners, I will say goodbye for now, but I will be right back after the little ad break to wrap up the show with all of our housekeeping stuff. So you guys stay tuned. I'll be right back. Hello there, old chat. Good to see another of General Atomic's finest still eager to serve. If you have any questions about Nuka World, I'd be delighted to answer them. Why don't we ask the newcomer? You support the news? Hey, Vault Dwellers and Wastelanders. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode with Ken from Chad, a Fallout 76 story we had a blast talking about mr house and all the other crazy things that came up during that episode this episode is obviously already running 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 it's running pretty wrong and um if you're looking for more robots content then i've been streaming a ton at twitch.tv slash robots radio most evenings seven i'm sorry 9 30 p.m eastern or 6 30 p.m pacific uh and then sometimes on the weekends too so go to twitch.tv slash robots radio drop drop a follow and come hang out with us in the evenings and then sometimes even on the weekends while we play fall i've been playing fallout 4 i've been playing a bunch of other games and having a blast with some of the community that likes to come and hang out in the chat so i would love to spend more time with you guys in there so we're going to skip the uh, extra extended choose your own adventure stuff at the end. I'm going to save that for next week. And speaking about next week, it's about that time again. We're coming up on the end of the month. We're going to be getting together with our tier four and higher patrons to have another chat. And these episodes are always a blast. We take on some sort of topic in the lore. I get our tier four patrons to guest on the show and we have a wonderful discussion and I get a whole bunch of different perspectives on things just like this episode. It's really nice to have other people around sometimes to hear their perspectives and to learn more about what they are able to find out about the information that I may not have discovered myself and get their thoughts on things. So this is always one of my favorite things to do every month. If you are interested in joining us, you can do so by signing up or upgrading your status on Patreon to a tier four 
uh, level or higher. Now that's $25 a month, so it's a pretty significant thing. But if you are interested in joining us, that is an option. And of course, that money goes to helping support the show and keeping these shows going. So it is highly, highly appreciated. I really do appreciate everybody who subscribes, even for $1 a month. And if you're even considering just dropping a dollar, that all of it helps. Now, I will also note that we are currently at $176 a month. If we hit 200 or when we hit 200, we will be doing a giveaway for patrons where I will be giving away a package of fun stuff, things like t-shirts, stickers, things like that to a random Patreon winner. And the higher tier you're at, the more entries you get to potentially win. So somebody signing up brand new right now for tier four would push us over that limit. And you'd also, because you're tier four, you'd get four entries into that giveaway. So this could happen this month. I I don't know. It depends. But otherwise, if it doesn't, that's cool, too. And we will have a really awesome show next week. Also, if you'd like to support the show in any other way, uh, some of the free ways that you can do that are simply telling your friends, retweeting our tweets. Uh, Like I mentioned during the uh, talk with Ken, um, hashtag robots sent me. I think that's going to be a really fun way for us to get a lot of curiosity about Robots Radio and what's going on here. Um, Anytime you drop a review for any other show that we've recommended or you uh, pop into another Twitch person or, uh, you know, like a streamer or somebody and you're there because I recommended them. So I'll drop a recommendation right now. Tune, who has guested on the show, Tuneversal or twitch.tv slash Tuneversal. Go check him out. It would be super cool for you to drop in there and say hi and hashtag robot sent me right in his in his chat in fact i'm watching him in the background right now he's one of those channels that i pop into every day as i'm working on stuff so um so go say hi to him and start using that hashtag because i'd really love to see if we can create a little bit of a i don't know kind of a, a ruckus is ruckus the right word i don't think ruckus is the right word Something to bind the community together is really what I'm going for. Something to let people know that this is more than just a, you know, a podcast or a podcast network. This is really a community of people. And speaking of a community of people, the other thing that you can dive into is our Discord server. There are links in the show notes. You can always just search Robots Radio Discord and you will find it. If you are looking for a place to hang out with similar people who are into games like fallout who love talking about these topics and you you know heck even just like to group together and play games Uh, this is the community we're building this uh, some people on the server are referring to as a family this is a robots radio family of people who are i don't know finding a place on the internet for people just like us so Go check that out. We would always love to, to have more of you join us and chat with us every day. The conversations are always fun and entertaining, and we'd love to see you on there. So this is already going along. I'm going to wrap this up with our two reviews on Apple Podcasts for this last week. We have Golden502 from Canada, who writes, Greatest podcast ever, Fallout, or otherwise. What? That is huge praise. Thank you so much, Golden. 
This podcast is amazing. It's my favorite podcast ever. For me, this podcast even beats Oxhorn and your podcast gets better every time I listen to it. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, man, one of these days I'm going to get Oxhorn on here. I really need to reach out to that guy. Um, I, I need to like put a note down. I'm going to write it on my hand right now. Reach out to Oxhorn, say hi, ask him where he gets his cool hats, invite him on the show. Okay, there we go. Uh, and then we, the other one we have is uh, Sammy Din the Morning. Sammy D in the Morning. <laughs> not Sammy Din the Morning. From the United States writes, amazing in all caps. Five stars. I love this show. I ended up getting into the Fallout universe very late into the series. I love to hear the lore behind it all. And it is inspiring me to look into playing the first games. Keep up the good work, Tom. Well, thank you so much, Sammy. And if you would love to help out the show, drop a, drop a review, drop a review on Apple podcasts or any of the things you listen to that you can drop reviews on. That would be awesome. Otherwise you guys know how to get a hold of me. This show has gone super long, but it's been super great. I hope you enjoy the extended episode and I will see you next week for our Patreon show, patreon.com slash fallout lorecast. If you're interested in that. And until then, uh, don't spend all your time as a recluse in a casino, I guess. I don't know. That's a terrible ending. Have a wonderful week. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to the Fallout Lorecast. All sounds and music are owned by Bethesda Softworks, and no copyright infringement is intended. If you have something you'd like to contribute to the show, please contact us at falloutlorecast at gmail.com or follow us and post some messages to us on Twitter at falloutlorecast. And if you'd like to support the show, tell a friend, or check out the rewards you can get for becoming a patron at patreon.com slash falloutlorecast. I really appreciate you listening, and I'd love to hear from you soon.